welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast that features conversations with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by The Craft Studio. With locations in New York City, on the Upper East Side, and in Tribeca, The Craft Studio is a perfect place to bring your kids for some crafting fun. CraftStudioNYC.com. I'm very excited to be interviewing Glynis McNichol today. Uh, Glynis is the author of the memoir, No One Tells You This. She is a prolific writer and has contributed to the New York Times, Elle, Town & Country, W, and Forbes, among other publications. She also co-authored a book on puberty called There Will Be Blood, The Hello Flow Guide to Puberty with Nama Bloom. A former internet marketing savant working 18-hour days, Glynis co-founded and runs The List, a private online community of high-powered women. Glynis, a Canadian, currently lives in Brooklyn when she's not out exploring the world. So welcome, Glynis. Thanks for being on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming, especially on this rainy, awful day. Yeah. Huge. Uh... Welcome fall in New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, congratulations on your fantastic review in the New York Times book review. Thank you. That yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's intense. I mean, I keep saying this whole thing's been intense. It's strange to be reviewed. It's strange. The whole thing is wonderful and like a little overwhelming. And So what was that like? You like picked up the book review and opened it up and I know you saw it online, but what was it like just opening it up? Well, the thing about the New York Times book review is they actually let you know, they let your publisher know weeks in advance that you've been assigned for review. Okay. And then they give you a general sense of when it's publishing. Okay. And then your publisher sees it a few days before it goes live. So I actually had seen it like three or four days before. You're just not allowed to, <laughs> I don't know what, I mean, I guess, I guess because no one wants to like get on the wrong side of the times, it doesn't occur to anyone to, to, you know, yeah. broadcast that in advance. But so I knew I, I had seen the review a few days ahead of time. And so it was really wonderful, but I did, where was I? I had to have somebody, I was out of town. And so I had to have somebody, um, I wasn't out of town. I was in the. I was for the East Hamptons yeah, Authors Night, night. Yeah. and um, Caroline Wexler went out that morning in Sag uh, Harbor and bought two copies of the Sunday Times, which is not uh, nothing because that is a lot to carry home, and brought it back to the house uh, so we could all read it, and it was really lovely. Uh, it was really, it was really nice. Um, Piper Weiss actually read it out loud over the breakfast table, so it was really, it was a pleasant experience. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. It is still fun to see everything in print, like. As a, like a newspaper lover and a magazine lover and somebody who has a history of in the media, there is something still thrilling about seeing it in print, even if the readership online is, you know, so much I larger. I just posted on my Instagram the other night after I, like, finished a stack of newspapers that I had saved for, like, three days and then mm-hmm. finally got to them all. I was like, does anyone else do this? Does yeah. anyone else, like, get the newspapers and hoard them? And surprisingly, a bunch of people said yes. Yeah, so I don't feel so alone, but I agree. I like the print. I can also myself. tell the difference in my—I've I, just come back from um, being in Paris, and I took all social media off my phone and made a point to read book books, not mm-hmm. just even on my Kindle. And after about ten days, you've really noticed, or I do— like there's almost like a chemical shift in your brain that your body like calms down and your brain feels better and you just I there's really I really believe there's something to reading book books or something to reading print like not having that light in your face makes a difference in how we just feel totally I feel like reading is the only thing that can keep my attention these days yeah like when, yeah. even if I'm watching TV I have my laptop on my I know, lap it's and, terrible but reading I'm like boom yep. the world is gone I'm like in it yeah. So, which is how I was with your book. <laughs> Thank you. No one tells you this by going Um So tell listeners um, what your memoir is about. 
I'm getting better at answering this question. Early or on, I, I was... No, no, it's good. I, no, I should be able to tell people what my book is about, but early yeah, on, I stumbled through it a little. Um, essentially, it's a memoir of my 40th year. I turned 40. I was single. I didn't have any children. I really felt like I approached my birthday with like an enormous amount of dread. And then I turned 40 and swiftly discovered that it was so much better and more exhilarating than I had ever been led to believe, which made me resentful that no one had prepared me to be like, wow, you could actually enjoy yourself. And then in the same time, it was, it was uh, much more difficult in ways that I was not prepared for. My mother was very ill, and I was uh, a primary caretaker in many ways. And my sister at that time was, was home alone with um, three small children, and so I was helping out where I could there. And so I, I felt like... And this applies to all women, but in, in the particular case of this book, I felt like the narratives we tell around uh, the experiences of single women were just so lacking. And the narratives we tell around the lives of women over a so-called certain age were like essentially non-existent. And so I got to the end of that year, and I am a writer, and I'd spent a lot of the year complaining about the lack of stories and had this, what I joke is my Oprah aha moment uh, uh, where I was like, uh, you were a writer, perhaps. And like, I felt like I had enough material from the year to make a somewhat compelling narrative. And so I turned it into a book, which fortunately got published. <laughs> I love how you started it off or you had the whole scene in the beginning when you took the subway out and you were at that random hotel, yes. like, yeah. looking out on the beach. It was just, like, when I think of your book, I just, like, picture you sitting there. Like, oh, thank you. But. Yeah. It's so, it was so random and last minute. But in that hotel, does that little motel in the Rockways doesn't yeah. exist anymore. And oh. it was just... Uh, I mean, after your description, I can't say I'm totally surprised <laughs> by that. But anyway. I always think it's too bad, though, because, like, the Rockways is both so close and also to take the train is, like, an hour and a half. It's nice to go out there for yeah. a little staycation. I think lots of people would do it if they could, but it just, you know, it's it's not available. So And the a, fact that you did it to celebrate your birthday when you had like a million people offering to do, right. do things with you and you were like, nope, I'm going to do this by myself. I'm taking the train. I'm going to this crazy hotel. I'm making an adventure. I that know. Great. I really just, tried like, to emphasize a them. lot about you. Right. In the book, I was like, I, I didn't want my friends to feel like I was criticizing them because I definitely, there was no question that if I'd wanted to have a big party, right. I could have. But yes, I didn't. Um, so the parts of the book, when you described dealing with your mother's Parkinson's disease were really, really moving. Um, there was one scene with your mom, um, who you had said had almost never gotten angry before. And she suddenly turned on you like a stranger. Um, after telling her she couldn't go home because she was home, you wrote, I watched a wave of horrific amazement sweep over her. And for a minute, I was reminded of the exaggerated acting in the old Twilight Zone episodes we used to watch on Saturday afternoons when I was a kid. She looked wild. Her eyes darted back and forth. The Parkinson's tremors, normally so subtle as to be invisible, jerked her body this way and that. It was as if my mother had disappeared and been replaced with, I had no idea. And then you later say it took me an hour to get her to bed that night and many more to calm her down. Yeah, I haven't read that actually since I wrote it. There's parts of the book because my, I was writing it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. No, no, it's okay. Sorry. There's parts. My mother died 20 days after I handed the first draft in. So there's parts of the book that I literally. It, it was a challenge when I first went on book tour to find uh, passages to read that I could read because it was still and, and still continues to be like the prologue and the particularly the epilogue I wrote in one sitting and I have never reread. <laughs> at all. I send it to my agent and said, you have to tell me if there's yeah. like spelling mistakes in here or anything. Cause I, I, it was too much. So I think one of the reasons those, that part of the book 
it's this we can talk about this in a second, but one of the reasons that, that those parts of the book resonate is because they were, I was writing very much in the moment, which is both, you know, has its challenge, good and bad, I think. You have writing with no perspective whatsoever, and you're writing from, like, a really raw place. Um, and I think that it's resonating. But it's interesting to me, readers, what they take... I can tell, based on the way people talk about portions of the book sort of what age or what experience readers have with their parents because some people only focus on the story the storyline with my mother some people complain that there's too much about my mother some people don't mention my mother at all I thought it was so interesting in the hmm. times review that there was so little mention of my mother in that review it was mm-hmm. very focused on yeah the fact I was single and the reviewer you know later said that she was in a similar position so it's so I think people see in the book or take from it is based a lot on what they're experiencing, which is probably true. There's just a lot in this book. But I think anybody who's gone through anything with an ill parent, particularly Parkinson's, and my mother suffered from uh, Parkinson's-related dementia, which is very uh, similar to Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And anyone, as increasingly, I think, that disease is becoming something we're all, unfortunately, becoming more familiar with. It's so unnerving because this person that you know so well becomes completely different you just don't, there's no good way to handle it. It's so overwhelming. There's, it's just, and there's this, there's a phrase for it that I've, I can't remember. I was trying to think what it was on the way here. Um, it was essentially like a strange mourning you go through. Like you're mourning the loss of the person you knew, even though that person is still present. And it's a weird, it's like twilight grief or something like that, where it's just such a strange place to be in. Cause there's no closure to it. I, I interviewed, um, a man named John Hennis who's written a series of essays about his mother's Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came on and was talking about the exact same thing. Yeah. How, it's know, so bizarre. And then how there are no societal, really, structures yeah. to help you cope with that. Yeah. But um, I think, unfortunately, that'll change because I think Alzheimer's is increasingly becoming a disease more and more people are forced to contend with. There was an amazing piece in the Times the other day about a woman who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and says she's not ready to retire yes, I saw yet. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Which is... That was interesting, too. Yeah. I mean, it's... As with so many things, when we have these platforms to talk about them, but also as, as the baby, my mother was essentially part of the baby boomer generation, ages into the, all of these illnesses. Yeah, baby boomers are always the generation yep. that forces <laughs> to talk about whatever. I mean, and in this case, sadly, we're now you know their illnesses and their their elder care increasingly become you know um, something we're all have to cope with. That's so true. yeah, it's tough though, tough for everyone. Uh, this is my last quote about your mom. Okay. We can move on. I <laughs> it's not the only thing I'm interested in. I'm interested in a lot of parts, but you wrote, she'd been slipping away for months now, maybe years, a drop at a time, and with each part of her lost, I'd had to ask myself whether I was imagining it. I could still hold her, after all, and hear her, and yet she was not there, too. Um, just having to deal with that, how did you cope? Like, what, just oh what God, coping I mechanisms I think this you book was partly a coping mechanism. Okay. Um I mean, this, as I said, this book was really written in the moment, which I had a writing teacher once who said you should always wait five years to write about anything. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't remember a thing. Yeah, and I think her point was that you don't have perspective and you're, you don't understand what was going on. And she's right, because I, there was, I had to revise this book heavily or do rewrites more than I normally would because I was rewriting to get perspective on things. Like, you don't want to write in anger and you don't want to write yeah. in... Uh, resentment or any of those things so there's details in this book that I 
probably wouldn't remember now had I not written them down as they were happening. I don't, I almost think that I'm only just coping with it now because I was writing the book as it was happening. Then I revised the book in the aftermath of her death and then the book has published. She only died a year and a half ago. So it's only like, I'm only coming out of sort of this whole five years. I don't (laughs) think it's denial. I think it's just that you channel and grief is such a weird beast anyway. Like it takes on so many forms and it can catch you off guard. And it's like a, it's such a strange. And I think we're talking about that more and more, you know, friends of mine run a website called modern loss and they put out the book modern loss, which is really, really wonderful. But like, I have that. Yeah. Figuring out how to talk about grief and how like you can sort of feel like, Oh, it's been a year and a half. I should be over this or dealt with this. And that's never the case. Like that doesn't, it just takes on different, um, sort of forms. So I don't, I, in the moment, like as those things were happening, I dealt with it by eating a lot of chocolates. Okay. I gained like 25 pounds that year. And then in the aftermath, I dealt with it by writing the book. And so you can ask me in a year how I'm dealing with it okay. now, because now it's all wrapped up in the book too. Like it's, it's, uh, and you know, I'm sort of having to come out of the book writing process and just sort of deal with real life. So sort I mean, just of. Just do another book and yeah. then I never have to deal exactly. with it. I think real life, she <laughs> yeah. says, having just landed from Paris. So I don't know how real it was. Okay, so I'll get away from these, um, you know, end of life sadness <laughs> stuff. You had this text relationship, mm-hmm. which you described in, so well. So you basically had, like, a relationship. It would have been like a pen pal relationship yeah. in the olden days. Mm-hmm. Of course. Right? Which just sounds like, very romantic. Someone, I think I put it in the book, but someone said to me, like, Oh, this is like when people used to send love letters to each other over long distances. And I was like, which is true to some extent. Yeah. (laughs) So you have this whole long texting relationship with some sort of celebrity. Mm -hmm. And I've asked you before and you will not, you still will not admit who it is, right? It's not admit. I just think that we are way, I think when it comes to stories about women, I really wanted this to be a story that centered that on I mean me, but on the character of a woman. And I was really keen to keep all the men in it inside roles. Like it's not, it's the same thing when I wrote that Times article about no one believes I'm happy. Like the opening anecdote about sitting beside a well-known writer, it was kind of like who he, I don't want the, I don't want the, the conversation around that article. I don't want the conversation around this book. Right to hook onto a famous male name because that's not the point of the book. And it's very, and it would very, very quickly become the hook of the coverage. And it's, and that would never be the case for a man, by the way, he could just name as many famous, like that's, we do not center male stories on women that they've been associated with. They're like, that's a side issue. When we talk about Warren Beatty, it's like a side issue of all of the Hmm. paramours he's had or relationships. And I just want to keep it, it was relevant in the sense that, like, fame is its own distorting thing. And, like, the way we can track people, everyone has, every single person by dint of social media has, like, a little fame imprint now. Because we can sort of track people's movements around. But it just made it easier to, like, track someone's movements. But I just kind of, I'm like, it's not about, the men in this book function as the same way women have functioned in most male stories, which is they're like side characters or just like accessories okay. to the narrative that, uh, so my, 
attempt to get the name out has failed me yet again. <laughs> it's deeply out. I just, it's but not I know, I'm glad you have a theory about it. No, I, I just don't want to give no, oxygen to it, too. I'm kidding. I, I don't really care. Yeah. I'm just playing. I, 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 it's, it's only your insistence on not telling that is sparking my interest. Uh, I st- the, the role <laughs> of the character does not gain any more attention because of it. Um, but it was a very funny, like, modern-day dating Completely. thing where you barely ever see someone, yet you become so dependent over text that, like, yeah. when you actually saw him once you wanted to leave to text to him text him to about tell him the about terrible the, experience yes, exactly. you had in real life which is because so funny it's like this the text the figure on your phone you have the relationship with like the person in the text messages but so much of that is like what you're creating <laughs> on your own right they're right. not there there's no smells there's no sounds there's no like touch and there's no way for them to irritate you with those things or satisfy you you know like it goes both ways there's not somebody sitting there you know like snoring in their sleep that you want to punch in the head they literally just exist on your phone which is very convenient and very comforting and very much a creation of your own imagination of what you're hoping that person is so when they show up in real (laughs) life and they just are completely disconnected from the character you've created I remember leaving like a dinner date or a date or a night or something with him and just being like oh my god that was awful and then picking up my phone (laughs) and wanting to text the like character on my phone I created that was such a source of comfort to me to be like I just had this terrible experience and I was like my god it's the same person like (laughs) how screw and I think we all do that it's so So screwy it's like we're all so many we're the online self we're the real life self and in our lives that can be difficult and complicated but in relationships it's just now I am so averse to texting anybody that I'm dating I'm like oh no call me or see me I'm like if I go back and read my text messages or even like like I don't really use tinder anymore but anytime the texting I see somebody like trying to push the relationship on text I'm like oh no 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 no. I'm not dating I'm not going down this road again it's all IRL from here on out I have a new mom friend which Mm -hmm. is like you know, my equivalent of dating at this point. Yes. Anyway. We, <laughs> Which is true. You can do a texting. dating book about mom friends. <laughs> but I like, I was like, I'm going to call you. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to just keep calling this woman. Yeah. Like, because it's so much faster. Yeah. Like I've, I've kind of gone full circle yeah. on the whole thing. Like, totally. I can't figure out these new plans. I don't know her that well. Like, let's just talk. Let's, okay. We figured it out. Let's just talk. Yeah. I know. It's anyway. amazing that that's radical now. I know. I know. <laughs> In breaking news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mother decides to make a phone call. Um, Sounds like a New Yorker cartoon called, like, 2018. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I was laughing out loud in the book when you were describing the time you were helping your sister, Mm -hmm. who was a single mom at that point, um, with her newborn and her two other kids. So you describe the scene with your niece and nephew, uh, Zoe and Quinn, and they bring you this pretend cup of coffee. Uh Um, The fact that they were doing that, and that you insisted on it was the funny part, too. Because um, you wrote, since they'd started walking, I'd been encouraging them both to bring me pretend coffee so that when they were old enough to make actual coffee, they would just bring it to me automatically. Yeah. That is some... Just by the way, that is not panned out yeah. yet. <laughs> All of my efforts on that. Although, what it, I think my niece has made me snacks. Like, they're getting to the age now they can make their breakfast. but and they, And we've reached the point... Like, when I was a kid, maybe this happened to you, where you were the only one that knew how to work the VCR. Like, your parents were like, I haven't got a clue. We've reached that point where, like, the television's connected to the iPad, which is connected to Netflix. I'm 
And I'm like, I don't yeah. have any idea how to turn the TV on. And I'm canning it to my three-and-a-half-year-old nephew being like, go for it. I don't know what's happening We had anymore. a TV guy come today. He just said, They just sent me an email and said, we just turned it on and off, and now it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, all right. Great. Right okay. Anyway, to keep going on this. So, okay, so you've trained them to bring you coffee, and then you continue writing. This was the first time it had actually worked. I sipped the pretend coffee theatrically as if it were the most magical thing I'd ever tasted, while Zoe clambered up, staring at me with wide, happy eyes. A second later, Quinn arrived, doing a running leap on the bed and sending my head smacking into the headboard and the coffee cup flying. <laughs> Maybe it's bad that I found that so funny. No, it's totally, I think that it's, um, I have a, a friend who's a, a, a professor in gender studies and so brilliant and smart, Marianne Cooper. And we've had conversations where she says, like, gender is all culture. And whenever I'm with the kids, I'm like, mm, I don't think I believe that gender is all culture. I really, the way they behaved was so, like, different. And, like, my nephew is so physical and my niece is so um, sort of, like, emotional and intellectual from a very young age that it was just amusing to me to, like, watch it play out of, like, my niece would climb into bed and, like, snuggle and want to like talk and then like my nephew would show up and it would be like, <laughs> like I'm about to be physically assaulted um so it was just fun I love being with the kids and I wanted that chapter to be uh like I wanted it to reflect sort of like the joy and energy and uh fun as well as you know the difficulties but like I do have so much fun with them and I do really enjoy that the energy around and the school run is so stressful and I do get frustrated when we talk to mothers as if like oh, the way they talk about the school run as if it's, like, life and death. I'm like, it, it's not that it's life and death. It's, like, it's how, it's so, it's the pinpoint of the day. Like, it's how everyone gets through their day, and it is so important. And I just remember feeling when I got the kids to school on time, I'd be like, somebody should give me an Olympic medal for getting this accomplished. And I just, I feel really, um, it's unfair the way we patronize the importance of those roles and and mock, I think, women who talk about them with levels of seriousness so and also I just think it's I just enjoy it and I might have more enjoyment because it's not my full-time life like there's always right, right. I say this in the book like in the back of my head is the knowledge that I have an apartment in New York that mm -hmm. I don't have to share with anybody and I will eventually go back there but I do like doing school runs and uh, I do like being with the kids they're older now so it's less yeah it's you could I can literally be like <laughs> you know get dressed and get in the car and or we babysit and they're like can make dinner dinner because a dinner for us is like a hot dog <laughs> I, I had um dinner we had dinner with this other couple and my girlfriend confessed to me like in a very ashamed way that she had been late to school with her mm -hmm. kids like eight times right and I'm like eight times right so I I held and she was like near tears mm -hmm. about it and I like, I was like okay here's what we're gonna do so if this particular friend I won't name your name is listening you can now call me and tell me you actually <laughs> listen to this episode but um she you know I was like okay here's what you have to do to not be late and mm -hmm. I like made her backtrack through the whole day and like set the alarm yeah. and now she's so proud she's yeah. like never late yeah and she's like so grateful I'm like all I did is tell you to set the alarm but it's it is so stressful it it's is. like you know the one thing you have to do anyway and it goes um, off the rails so easily especially totally. getting girls dressed oh my lord like getting them to wear something that they want to wear I, I in that I slip into like all of the language that I in theory I hate <laughs> of like oh you look pretty oh do you want to go to the salon and I'm like oh this is disgusting <laughs> but like we have to get to school on time 
And so a big part, I shouldn't say Anzo, a big part of your book also was when you um, decide you don't want to have your own kids. Mm-hmm. That instead of sort of waiting and hoping and thinking eventually, you decide, mm-hmm. actually, you know what, I don't even really want that. Yeah. And if I had wanted it, I would have done it. Like yeah. I've accomplished so many other things in my life. Mm-hmm. It's not like this would have slipped through the cracks. Right. I must not really want it or right. else I would have done it. And so you have this great scene where you're holding Connor, your sister's newborn, mm-hmm. and asking, do I want this? And ultimately you say no. But then you add, of course, I might regret it. I knew that. But it seemed to me that going through life-making decisions on what I might possibly feel in a future that may or may not come was a bad way to live. So tell me more about that. And that Yeah, I-, I really... I think the question around children for me was... It boiled down to, would I be okay without children? This, mm-hmm. this sense of, like, would I be... If children, if I didn't... I think, you know, turning 40 right then, I knew if I wanted to, if I wanted to get pregnant, essentially, mm-hmm. I needed to make that decision right. on, in that moment, on that spot. And I, and I try and emphasize here too, there's a lot of ways to be a mother because I think too often we confuse pregnancy with motherhood in ways that are really uh, disrespectful to what being a mother really is. And I wanted to say, like, to really emphasize, like, there are, were ways down the line that if I decided I wanted to be a mother, I could pursue. But the idea, did I want to get pregnant and have a baby was something I had to look in the face and just, and really make that decision. Cause as we know, yeah. <laughs> there is a clock, whether or not we want to acknowledge it or not at all times. And I really just, because I was in this moment of like, I was in the literal deep end of children. I was having, it wasn't, a, it, I wasn't theorizing. I was sitting there, the kids and I just thought, like, am I going to be okay if this doesn't happen to me? And it really made me, forced me to consider my life as something I had created on purpose as opposed to something that had happened to me while I was waiting for my real life to happen to me, which mm-hmm. I think is the way we often talk to women. Like, oh, you're just, like, I constant not so much anymore, but I very frequently am confronted with, like, oh, don't worry, there's still time. As if you're waiting for life to come. And I just thought, no, my life is something I've built intentionally that I want, that I value, that I like, that I'm comfortable with. And I'm going to be okay if I don't have kids. In fact, I don't want kids badly enough to upend my whole life in pursuit of them. I think that's really what it came down to. And I, I think for some women, I don't think, I know for some women it's a question of, I don't want children, but for me, it was far more a question of like, do I want them enough? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't want them enough and I would be okay without them. And then of course, when you say that, so often the response I've been on the receiving end of is, oh, you're going to regret it. Don't you worry that you're going to regret it. Don't you worry that down the line, you're going to wish you'd made a different decision. And I'm like, don't you worry that about everything in your life? Like, don't like, yeah. but the idea that I'm going to go against what my instincts are telling me. I'm a grown-up. I have a reasonably successful life. I know myself fairly well. The idea that I would go against that on the off chance that 10 years from now or 20 years from now I might regret that decision, like, that seems like a really a, a terrible way to live. And just on any level. Just like, a, like, am I going to regret I don't take this trip to Paris? That's fine. But, like, am I going to regret not creating a life when everything about me right now is saying that like I've really investigated this decision and interrogated myself and like, no, and don't insult me or women in general. Don't this believe women when they tell you that they know what they want is essentially Isn't what it is. there a whole thing like your best guess at how you feel tomorrow is how you'll feel today? Yeah. Oh, that's a good line. I've never heard that, but yeah, yeah. I yeah. think like, I think it's a saying or maybe I, I know I didn't make it up, but I've heard it somewhere. 
because I often am like, what should I do? What should I yeah. do? It's like, well, how do I feel about it now? Yeah. That's the, my best guess. And we don't ever talk to women like they know themselves. It's always everything around women's, you know, magazines, culture, everything is like how you're not okay the way you are. Let us tell you how to make yourself better. Like we don't actually believe women very easily when they tell us like, I'm pretty great with how things are. It's always like, oh, no, well, there, it could be better. And so I just <laughs> was like, I actually, I'm not saying, like, I have all the answers, but I know myself well. I, and I I'm was 40 at that time. I'm 44 now. Like, I have a fairly solid knowledge of myself. I feel pretty secure with how I've lived my life at this point. Like, if I say this is how I feel... Yeah, well, take your word for it. Yeah, take my <laughs> word for it. Like, and yeah. also, what? what do, the fat people always feel obligated to weigh in on that. I'm always like, what, what skin do you have in this game? Because take all that energy and put it towards changing, you know, healthcare in this country or like the support I, system around I mean, childcare. I find the more people fight for something that is basically irrelevant, like the more people insert themselves into something in your life, yeah. it's just something they're working exactly. out. Exactly. Yes. And so oftentimes I'm like, I'm just going to let this person right. work this out and I'm not yes. going to like. You're a little overly invested in exactly. in a life that you have nothing to do with. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I'm not like in a yes. emotional state, I can right. like make that distinction. <laughs> it's hard. Unless it's like my mom or something. Exactly. No, um, so you, speaking of this, you know, successful life that you've built, you basically, you started out as a, wa- a bartender waitress. slash waitress, okay, waitress in the East Village. Terrible, terrible bartender. So I always okay, have like waitress, waitress, I'm sorry, waitress in I the village. Like the, an image in my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was probably not the right. Um, and then you went from there to building this 18 hour a day, like high pressure, high power job, which you said was sort of a quote, no clocking out, no off switch, mm-hmm. high intensity job. Um, and then five years into that career, you said you didn't so much stop as buckle under my own momentum. God, that's so, so interesting. I haven't read, I haven't read the book now in like nine months. I'm like, wow, I did write that. You did. <laughs> yeah. You wrote it. I have it right here. I could, I could. <laughs> so, um, what, tell me about the burnout. Cause I was really interested. You, yeah. you describe sort of the burnout and the spiral into like where you had to basically just stop yeah. and regroup, um, in a really great way. So how did you how did you cope with the with the burnout basically? So I was very early on um so I was a media reporter and I was sort of that first wave of media internet journalism where there was no it was and I was lucky because I sort of catapulted my way over to a position that pre the internet would have taken like 15 years to achieve. So the internet both allowed me to fast track to a place in my career But at the same time, there was a price to pay for that. So there was no, we didn't have discussions in those days about like, you know, you get off work or you shouldn't be answering emails or let's turn our phone off. I was really working nonstop for for years. And so when I burnt out, it was so like a spectacular burnout. Like I like cleared my desk and walked home over the Brooklyn Bridge and just like, like, and then I didn't work for six months. Now I had... I was, I'm somewhat responsible financially, so I had some savings, but I did not have the amount of savings to facilitate Glynis not working for six months, but I, it just kept going. Like I'd watch my, and I'd been supporting myself since I was a teenager. So to say I was watching my bank account diminish was really like all rational thought had gone out the window. And I remember talking to a therapist about it after, and she just said like that, that is that is the definition of burnout, where you're just not making rational decisions at all. But we tend 
now I think we take that word more seriously. When this happened to me, I think it was uh, 2012, and I was so early that people would sort of be like, looking at me like I was a little crazy or I didn't know what I was talking about. I wrote an article about it in 2013 or 14, and I still get emails about it. I get emails from college professors. I get emails. I got emails from Iraq war veterans saying I describe PTSD perfectly. I get emails from, like, college kids doing papers. So I really, I just happen to be a little early into what I think we all struggle with now, which is the relentless onness Mm -hmm. that comes with the phone, with the internet. I think... Probably the news cycle right now is making a lot of us check out in ways that is healthy because we don't actually always say to people, like in August I took all social media off my phone just because I thought this is the break that I need and I think probably most people need it. And I just, someone said, well, aren't you worried? And I said, if the apocalypse happens, someone will come and tell me or they'll see them running down the street. Like, except there are ways to let people know what's going on in the world that don't exist on your phone. But it was so um, unnerving because I'd been so ambitious and it was so debilitating. And I just, I remember there was like a full month where I would just like lie on the bedroom floor and watch Golden Girls reruns. And Love just, Golden Girls. I know. And I would just like be like, oh, to be a six-year-old woman in Florida in the 80s before the internet. Now that is like heaven. Like I was like, that is where my head was at. It was so desperate for an off switch. And in the, I mean, at the time it was scary and irresponsible and all those things. And in hindsight, I'm very grateful because it really made me turn and look and say like, what is it you really want to do? And make some pretty hard decisions that, eventually resulted in this book and me doing writing that I want to do and you know Rachel Sklar and I creating a a business out of it that still that still runs so but those things hindsight is always so much more like like the book is hindsight right it's like you can talk about it and it sounds right. great but in the moment it's so I literally there was I lived in Brooklyn Heights at the time and I would walk around I couldn't pay my cable bill or my internet bill, so everything got cut off. And I would walk, this is before everyone passcoded their uh, internet signal, I'd walk around the neighborhood with my computer looking for like a random signal to get online. <laughs> and people would see me that I knew, because I knew so many people in the neighborhood, they'd be like, what are you doing? I'd go, oh, you know, you know, my internet's just down today and I have to like, <laughs> and they'd Aww. be like, oh, okay. But it was really, it was, it would make a great scene in a movie, but at the time it was just so pathetic. No, it's not pathetic. <laughs> it's, you know. Part of the part of your process. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to know what's next for you, and then if you have any advice to aspiring writers. What is next is, um, I think, hopefully in a novel. I don't think I'll be writing a memoir again. In the interim, I think I'm going to do a short book for Simon and Schuster, just talking about the profession of midwife. They're doing like a series, and I'm going to oh. write the midwife, uh, which is sort of like a little interim project for me to. Awesome. Write, but not uh, have to use my imagination <laughs> too much. And I think probably the next one is a novel. I, there's a late '90s New York is an ever fascinating place and time for me. So it's sort of in the back of my head. But I'm still this book is still sort of chugging along. So a lot of my energy is still focused on this. Um, advice. Advice. My advice to aspiring writers is, and I got this advice too, and I understand it's sometimes frustrating, is to think of writing as a craft like anything else. Like, it, you, it's not a, the result can be magical, but, like, the actual doing of it is just a matter of doing it every day. And, and I did it every day because that was my job to write 15 posts a day, and, 
as much as that was exhausting, when it came to write to the writing of this book, on days where I felt terrible or my writing felt terrible or I was so discouraged, I had that muscle memory of knowing like tomorrow will be better because mm-hmm. I put in all those hours doing it that I I didn't panic, that I just sat back down at the desk again and I wrote. And there was no like, oh, I'm waiting for inspiration or the muse or all that other nonsense that gets attached to it. Literally, like, if you're training for a marathon, you have to run every day. Like, as anything else, you just have to keep doing it. And that doesn't sound very inspirational, but it's true. And you will inevitably get better. And also just read. Mm -hmm. Like, get off the internet is my number one piece of advice in life. Just try and get off the internet for a portion of every day. Leave your phone away from your bed and read for an hour before you go to sleep. Unless you're listening to this podcast, in which case, keep your phone closed. Well, no, because the <laughs> podcast is for when you're exercising or when you're on the train or whatever. But I do think really, and as we talked about, like listening still exercises your brain and your imagination. I mean, like, no, I, I was yeah, like, no, absolutely. thank you for just always it. listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, those are my, I do think as, as beneficial as the internet has been making time to get off it as much as possible is really helpful for all of our sanity. Totally agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much thank for you coming. For having me. This, this is so fun. <laughs> all right. Thanks. This episode of moms don't have time to read books has been sponsored by the craft studio, craftstudionyc.com with locations on the Upper East Side and in Tribeca. It's a really fun place to take your kids to do some crafting and painting. Bye.